1: Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Emily Katz-Anhalt. Dr. Emily Katz-Anhalt is a professor of classics at Sarah Lawrence College. She's here to talk with us about a wonderful book she published with Stanford University Press called Embattled, How Ancient Greek Myths Empower Us to Resist Tyranny. The book was published in 2021. Emily, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Uh, It's a great topic, uh, how Greek myths empower us to resist tyranny. And I must say, it's a very, very timely topic with the rise of populism and tyrannical governments all over the world. But before we start talking about the book, it would be great if you could tell us a little about yourself. Tell us about your background, your field of expertise, and how you became interested in Greek classics.
0: I I attended Dartmouth College as an undergraduate, and I studied ancient philosophy and ancient Greek, uh, and I hold a PhD in classical philology from Yale University. Um, Classical philology really gets you down into the text at a very granular level, but when I was in college at Dartmouth, I was taught to read with one eye on the text and one eye on the world. And I've always been interested in the intersections between literature and politics. That is how it is that our, the stories that we read or watch or tell how they shape our attitudes and aspirations and the ways that we treat one another. So this is this is sort of a, lo- a long-standing interest of mine. And I think these stories are only valuable as they speak to us today.
1: You're absolutely right. And I loved it when uh, the way you were reading literature. Uh... I remember when I was doing my viva session for me, PhD, I was a little bit told off because I was told that I've gone into the world of politics and I've kind of moved away from literature. And I said, well, what's the point of literature if it doesn't engage with the world around it? Because <laughs> I'm very exactly. interested in how literature, again, tells us something about our world today, rather than simply looking at it as a great work of art in its ivory tower, completely separated exactly.
0: from the rest of
1: the world. Now, let's talk about the book, In Battle, How Ancient Greek Meets Empower Us to Resist Tyranny. Why did you decide to write the book? Where did the idea of the book uh, come from? And you wrote it in 2021, and people are still talking about the rise of tyrannical governments or conservative politics or populist politics around the world.
0: Well, I have to admit, I'm a very slow writer, and the impetus for this book was actually 2011, uh, during the Arab Spring, um also the impetus for its its predecessor uh, i wrote a book in 2017 called enraged why violent times need ancient greek myths and i started thinking about both of these projects in in, in 2011 because i was really surprised during the arab spring to hear politicians and pundits in the united states confidently predicting that democratic societies would emerge in these places that had only ever known dictatorships or autocracies once the dictator was removed and I was struck by that because I thought well you if you'd ever read the Odyssey you wouldn't think that because the Odyssey shows that when you remove a king or an autocrat democracy does not in any way spontaneously emerge what you get is chaos and you have uh, a few powerful individuals grasping at what they can get uh, and creating a miserable existence for everybody else and that that's one of the major themes of the odyssey but i realize most people don't know these stories anymore uh they they may have some familiarity with modern adaptations or translations um but and those might be excellent in their own right many of them are but they don't transmit the themes and the emphases that the ancient greek versions of these stories transmit so i wanted to write something that would would give People today who don't read ancient Greek some experience of what reading those stories would be like for their original audiences, and, that, that, and that's why each chapter starts with a retelling of a relevant tale or portion of a tale to um, try to try to transmit what that meant for its original audiences. Mm. And I should say that um, yes, I totally agree that we're we're in a moment now where uh, we're sliding towards sectarian violence authoritarianism or various forms of authoritarian populism and the greeks are remarkable because they made a transition in the opposite direction away from tribalism away from autocracy and toward broader forms of political participation exemplified most famously by the athenians direct democracy in the fifth century bce Mm -hmm. so i wanted to see how their stories Uh, facilitated that process and i i um really think it's a it's it's a my books are really for people who don't know how useful these stories can be for us today Mm. to think with Mm. Uh,
1: and uh, you raise a couple of very important points which i'm sure we will pick up as we go ahead with the interview tribalism and transition towards democracy and i myself when i think of literature i can't think of anything more political than greek literature and there are their their the epics the tragedies they're very much entangled with the realities of our world and again i think in the past five years five or six years i read somewhere that even works of, for example george Orwell has taken off so it's great that people are i guess are becoming more aware of the power of literature and how can how they can teach us something about the world we live in today so let's talk about uh, the ancient Greek experience, a transition towards a civil society and broader forms of political participation that you just mentioned. Can you talk more about that? How did that come about? When did that transition towards uh, civil society and more democratic participation, or political participation come about?
0: Well, the first point I have to make is it was a very gradual process. Uh, we can track it from the eighth century through the fifth century BCE. Uh, we don't have information for prior to the eighth century. We're kind of coming to the coming to the story a little bit late. Uh, the Greek the 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 stories that coalesced into the Iliad and the Odyssey were probably told for many centuries prior to the eighth century, but we we don't really have evidence. What what we can guess what what. The scholarly consensus is that these stories coalesced sometime in the 8th century into something very close to the form that we have them. But prior to that, they were transmitted orally. Uh, And so their details and emphases could evolve. And even once they coalesced in the 8th century, they weren't written down until sometime in the 6th century. We don't even know precisely when that was. Uh, But what that meant was that they didn't owe their existence to any uh political or religious authority and so they could evolve as as people's interests and concerns changed um and then the tragedies hundreds of years later uh reinterpreted some of these same stories um so what we're what we're kind of seeing this 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 um evolving process uh and and The essential fact was this challenge to traditional attitudes and values that has to occur if you're going to go from an autocratic society or a society where a small group of well-born or wealthy people rule uh, to a more egalitarian system. It's not just about changing the institutions. It's about changing people's attitudes and values.
1: And this transition, this gradual transition to democracies, I think it, it might be a bit of always strange to say that greek mythologies enabled it but i guess we can say that these these ideas were reflected or fostered by 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 greek literature their tragedies and epic am i right
0: yeah i would say that it was it was a a fostering it was an interaction Mm. uh and and the, the key piece of it in the homeric epics was introducing the notion that the audience needs to be a critical moral thinker. If you think about how fundamental that is to democratic government, where every individual has the, both the the freedom and the obligation to make political and moral distinctions. Uh, So even in the earliest forms of these stories that have survived, the audience has already given a broader view than the characters within the stories have. So Homer's characters, have very traditional values. Uh, Help your friends, harm your enemies, uh, be the best that you can be in warfare. But the audience is already seeing the consequences of these priorities. And they they don't always turn out very well for the characters themselves. So for example, the characters think that gods and fate do everything, but the audience sees that it's the character's own choices that have direct consequences for the quality of the character's lives. So that, we have to be careful not to think teleologically because nobody in in Homer's era had ever thought of democratic government. It wasn't even a concept, uh, but what they were seeing was that abuses of power are self-defeating and that this hierarchical power structure doesn't really serve anybody's interests, not even not even the power holders.
1: Hmm. Uh- what I like about the book is the way, and as you mentioned in the beginning when you were introducing the book, the way you have approached this topic. So you have seven chapters here. Each chapter is about a concept, democratic concept with things, let's say, vices we need to be aware of. You have leadership, community, reality, deception, success, justice, conflict. So first chapter is about leadership and you talk about Iliad. So, um question that i have how how does iliad represent or show a tyrannical world and also the consequences of harmful leadership in that
0: so the iliad depicts a world of um very rigid social and political hierarchies what you have is a handful of very powerful individuals competing for status and power uh among themselves and they are honored for their success in warfare, uh, and they attain great material rewards for their success. But what the Iliad shows is that these guys are not looking out for the community that honors them. They are prioritizing their own self-interest at everyone else's expense. And the irony is that they don't even serve their own interests very well so you have um for example the, the leader of the greek ex- the, this, the, the story is that the greeks are encamped on the shores of troy and they're trying to recover this stolen woman uh helen who's been stolen by the trojan prince and the leader of the greeks is this uh agamemnon who has heredit the hereditary right to rule and the other kings who lead their own forces have agreed that he'll be in charge uh but he and achilles quarrel over another woman I mean this is these are these are these are characters of ter- terrible priorities for 2023 uh they they treat women as as property and possessions and nobody thinks anything is wrong with that but even Homer's earliest audiences could see that that is a source of conflict and that they don't have any tools for resolving these conflict conflicts so uh Agamemnon and Achilles fall out over this woman and uh, Achilles decides he's not going to fight anymore on the Greek side and he's their best warrior. So he's willing to imperil his own team in the service of his own honor and material compensation. And Agamemnon is such an inept leader that he antagonizes his best fighter and it, and and compels him to sit out the fighting. And then the, the great irony is that Achilles prays to the gods that they ensure that the Trojans prevail over the Greeks. And he doesn't think that through because one of the victims of the Trojans success is his own best friend or even possibly lover, Patroclus. So he, 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 he's not even acting in his own best interest. And this we see again and again in the these powerful leaders in the Iliad. And what it does is for the audience, it raises the question, what, well, what should a community want in a leader? What, what constitutes good leadership? We, we don't really have any examples of that in the iliad uh
1: speaking of these leaders i guess it still sounds very familiar in 21st century we still have such such leaders right they confuse their own personal priorities for the benefit of um they, they, they prioritize that over the benefit of the people to whom they're supposed to represent
0: And somehow they bamboozle everybody else into thinking that that's the way things should be. But the Iliad is already, I mean, it's remarkable to me 3000 years ago, the Iliad is already calling that conception of leadership into question. Mm. Uh, And it's, it's only a question that can arise in a society that never thought of their, their Kings or their leaders as gods. It's very clear that these folks are all mortals. Uh, And so it is, it becomes the community's responsibility to think about what, what do we want our leaders to do? Uh, what what should they be best at? You know, the, the terminology we have today is all derived from ancient Greece. So we talk about aristocracy uh, and that's a combination of aristos, which means best and kratos, which means mm. power. Uh, but it doesn't say anything about how the best people will wield their power or how, or, or or what they're best at. So that's a kind of what I think was like a proto-democratic question: What do we want our leaders to be best at? Uh, and, and and the other thing about about aristocracy is it, it tended to be very unstable. So you might then have, um, uh, well, I mean even even other 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 terms we have from from Greek like oligarchy, is from oligoi meaning few and arch meaning rule. But again, it's the few who rule, but who are these few and who decides who they should be?
1: Mm.
0: And then, of course, democracy is a combination of demos and kratos, demos being the people, and kratos being power. But it too doesn't say anything about how the people will wield their power. And the Greeks were very clear that anyone could abuse power, the one, the few, or the many could abuse their power. Mm. But what I think the Iliad really emphasizes that abuses of power don't serve anyone well, least of all the people who abuse their power, even even the powerful folks are not gaining. So Agamemnon suffers for his uh, mm. foolishness and ineptitude as a leader. Achilles doesn't fare well. Uh, Odysseus is another model of leadership, and he he's kind of a bully in the Iliad uh and he's going to end up having a lot of travails which will which we find out about in the odyssey mm-hmm. so we're not getting any positive examples of leadership in the iliad just this this challenge to the traditional notion that the best people should lead well who who, who are those
1: people yeah. um, and uh, so so this, this tyrannical word that Elliot is representing, does it also suggest that there might be a possibility or that people that, that, that the society have a responsibility for creating a constructive leadership? Does it offer a point towards an alternative vision as well, highlighting responsibility yeah. of people?
0: yeah i think it does i mean i don't talk about it so much in uh embattled I, it's really something i go into in detail in enrage the earlier book which is focused more on the iliad but one of the things that these the traditional value system really highlights is this notion that vengeance equals justice uh, and the iliad shows that vengeance is interminable ever escalating and ultimately not satisfying. So Achilles, in an effort to avenge the death of his dearest friend, goes on a rampage, and he becomes like a god. He's, he's uh, By birth, he's half uh, di- divine and half mortal. But when he becomes like a god, he becomes monstrous. And that's the other uh, sort of strand that runs through the Iliad. That is, we have the gods as countermodels to mortal leadership. So Zeus can rule by violence and intimidation because he rules forever and he's all powerful and no one can challenge his authority, but a mortal ruler would be foolish to try to emulate Zeus's means of wielding power. And um, what Achilles discovers in his rampage when he becomes monstrous and is just killing and slaughtering indiscriminately in order to avenge his friend's death, it doesn't help. I mean, this is something we all kind of know, right, that 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 um, no amount of vengeance is going to undo an injury or bring back a, a dead loved one. And so on some level, we know that, but there is, I think it's a very natural impulse to want to take revenge. Um, but the extraordinary thing about the Iliad, and I have to stress, this is 3,000 years ago. The thing that does bring some comfort and some solace to Achilles is not all the killing but this brief moment of empathy and shared grieving that he shares with the father of his best friend's killer in other words his greatest enemy's father comes to ask for his son's body back after achilles has killed him and it's this moment of insight that achilles has where he suddenly recognizes that the one thing that we all share as human beings is our capacity for suffering and death. And it's that little moment of insight that enables him to return the body, grieve together with the grieving father, and it restores his humanity. He can rejoin the human existence uh, and he can he can now eat and he can sleep, things he was not able to do when he was on his murderous rampage. So I think that is, for me, that is the positive glimmer in the Iliad, this notion, A, that the community bears a responsibility in deciding what it is that we want in our leaders, and B, this notion that the thing that binds us, that uh, enables us to survive all the, all the tragedy in the world is this recognition of our common humanity.
1: And uh, you also talk about the Odyssey. How does the Odyssey differ from Iliad in terms of depicting leadership?
0: So the Odyssey uh, describes the situation, starts about by describing the situation back at home in the the, the home island of Odysseus, who's uh, one of the warriors who's gone off to Troy to try to recover Helen. Uh, And the the Trojan War took 10 years. So he's been away for 10 years. And when the Odyssey starts, he's been away for actually 20 years because he's been wandering on his way home. And the interesting thing to me about the Odyssey is it's, it's called the Odyssey, meaning the adventures of Odysseus or the exploits of Odysseus. But we don't actually meet Odysseus until a quarter of the way through the story. It's 24 books and we meet him in book five. I think my math is wrong, but you get the point. We don't meet him for a while and the first four books depict the situation in his home of ithaca where in his absence uh i have to stress this again democracy didn't arise with the absent king instead you have a group of rapacious noblemen who have commandeered his household and they they would like to his wife to uh agree to marry one of them and she she's refusing to make a decision so in the meantime they're just consuming all of Odysseus's possessions and mistreating his his uh, servants his slaves his family Uh, and they're having a grand old time but they are making uh, a miserable existence for everybody else um so his it, the gods don't like this. This is this is a this is a very concerning situation for the gods because uh, Odysseus was a good king, and Athena goes to this is the other thing about I should say about these epics. They give us in um, we get to experience what happens in the divine realm as the mortal characters do not. So one of the scenes, uh, opening scenes in the Odyssey, we see the gods in council. And Athena says, you know, this is a terrible, this looks bad for us because Odysseus was a good king. And why should any king want to be a good king seeing how Odysseus is being kept away from his home and he's being held in a magical realm uh, by the goddess Calypso. So he hasn't been able to come home. And in the meantime, his community is in chaos and Athena says no we have to get we have to get things moving we have to get him get Odysseus back home So she sends his son uh, or she inspires his son to go in search of his father and the son then visits two communities where there's a king in place, And uh, the people are respect their obligations to the king. The king respects his obligations to the people. Everybody's happy. Everybody's flourishing. These are thriving communities because they have political order and uh, everybody is um, uh, obeying their... they enjoying freedoms, but also respecting their responsibilities towards one another. So the Odyssey introduces this really radical idea that a good leader is one who makes life better for everyone in the community, doesn't prioritize his own interests at everyone else's expense. So you have these examples of bad leaders, that is the noblemen uh, abusing their their numerical superiority uh, and making life miserable on Ithaca. And the good leader. And and of course, again, in this moment, there's no other option. The best you can hope for is a good king. But this notion that a good king is one who prioritizes the interests of everyone, not just his own interests.
1: And, and this is where the idea of reciprocal obligations also come from, to create this human community.
0: Right, right. So the, the classic example in ancient Greece is this concept of guest friendship, or Xenia in Greek, and it's this notion that when you are uh, visiting some in someone's home, they will host you uh, lavishly, and you then have resp- They have responsibilities to behave respectfully toward you as your host, and you have responsibilities as a guest to behave respectfully toward them. So the 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 the, the stories are launched by an egregious violation of guest friendship. That is the Trojan prince Paris who stole his host's wife. That is definitely a violation of guest friendship if you are uh, being hosted by someone and you steal his wife. Uh, But in these palaces that are orderly and well-functioning that Odysseus' son visits, uh, guests are treated uh, with great respect. They are welcomed uh, with food and clothing and warmth and um, politeness. And it's only after they've been fed and taken care of nicely, then the host says, Well, who are you? Uh, why why are you here? Could you be a pirate? <laughs> and and I always love that, that you know, you welcome someone into your home, even knowing that they might they might actually be uh, a pirate. But um, this is a model of a kind of reciprocal civility that we have we have many such things. I mean, politeness, kindness, uh uh, decency; these are these are these are not zero sum entities. These are these are qualities that are actually in everyone's self interest. And this is one of the remarkable things for me about the epics is that they don't suggest that kindness or compassion or decency or humanity have to come out of selflessness. They actually have to come out of understanding your own self interest uh, and recognizing. That it's actually in your interest to abide by these reciprocal norms. So that that I think is a is a model for civilization.
1: Mm. Um, let's go to another chapter where again you talk about Odyssey, um, and I have a question. I will ask you at the end if you like if you prefer Odyssey to Iliad because I guess you talk more about Odyssey <laughs> compared to Iliad.
0: Well, It's really just because the first, the earlier book Enraged is primarily about Uh, tragedies. So this is, this is a a kind of a sequel to Mm, Enraged. mm, mm. Uh, And, and so I felt that I had, um, spend a lot of time on that first step of civil society which is recognize that violent rage doesn't serve you very well and stop admiring the violent rage in other people and i think mm. the iliad makes that point very emphatically uh but i did want to talk about the way that odysseus shows up in the iliad so that's why i have mm. just the one chapter on the iliad i uh, wish
1: it, i wish i had read that book first before talking to you about this <laughs> it doesn't
0: matter it doesn't matter what order you read them in it, it really doesn't but yeah, I mean, yeah. Sort of like a, they're in tandem with each mm, other. I feel mm. like it originally was one project, but I realized it was oh, too bulky. That's and right. So yeah. I, I had to split it in
1: two. Mm. Um, let's talk about the other chapter, which is reality. And you know, it might not be directly relevant, but the, the, this is the chapter where you talk about the dangers of fantasy, rational thinking, and forgetting the reality of leak experience. And I was a few, a couple of months ago, I'm not going to name that country, I was watching a promotional video of the one of the political parties in one of the democratic countries of Europe, and that party is not in power. So the the leader of that political party was talking about how AI can improve life, all these grand projects, whereas in that very country right now, poverty is raging, cost of living is rising, homelessness is rampant. There's absolute chaos in that very, very old country in Europe, which is a democratic institution. I was thinking, What is this guy thinking like his people no wonder he's not been in power for over 10 years his party hasn't been in power he has completely lost touch with the realities of life and i really love this chapter where you talk about odyssey and how this novel sometimes that this novel symbolizes the this epic symbolizes the dangers of fantasy rational thinking magical thinking and they forget the realities of lived experience would be great if you could talk about this aspect yeah,
0: yes so this is something that i think is so vital to this to the to the effect that these stories can have so you know stories are wonderful we, we all love stories and it's wonderful to lose yourself in a story but the odyssey cautions against the risk that we might prefer to stay in fantasy land rather than uh focus on the realities of real life and um when we do finally meet odysseus he's living in this sort of magical paradise where he's uh, living with a beautiful goddess on this island paradise and but the thing is he's miserable he really wants to get home he wants to get home to his family and his community and restore his political authority Uh, but he's stuck he's being held captive by this goddess and uh she offers to make him immortal so he could he could be immortal have eternal sex with a beautiful goddess forever and he turns it down and i think that's sort of surprising i mean you might want to you know kind of play out that fantasy what if what if you had an offer like that uh but what makes him turn it down is he wants the challenges of real life and his story can't even begin until he makes that decision she says you can leave but she's only going to let him leave if he wants to go and he really wants to go so i started thinking well We get those kinds of offers all the time. Anytime you're reading a good novel or you get even even a a, a fanciful political promise or or political ad, we're we're constantly being offered fantasies of real life. Um, But the Odyssey never lets you forget that this is a story and that your role is to be uh, a critical thinker and uh, think about what are the choices that the characters have and why do they make the choices that they do? And are those good choices? So for Odysseus, if he were to stay in this island paradise, the suitors who are uh, destroying his home and his community would continue to do that. He would never be able to return to, uh, to his wife, to his son, uh, to restore his family and restore his, his, uh, his political kingship. Uh, So, this is, this is the problem that we have, right? Uh, we have autocrats and would-be autocrats who would love us to stay in the realm of fantasy and believe whatever fantasies they spin uh, and not think critically about how we might make the world better in, in here and now and, and what are the achievements that are available to real live human beings in the real live world. I'm, I'm very concerned about terms like virtual reality uh, which I think is is a contradiction in terms. Uh, and I wrote the book before AI was really in the in the in the zeitgeist. Uh, but I think it's even more true uh, as AI starts ramping up because we need the discernment to be able to tell the difference. And sure, you can enjoy fantasy, you can learn from fantasy, but you have to be able to distinguish the two, and you have to prioritize the real world.
1: And uh, earlier in the interview, at the beginning, we talked about tribalism. So, can you talk about how did the how the Greek tragedies of the fifth century challenged this idea of tribalism and promoted a civil society? And again, I cannot emphasize how important it is because I guess with the uh, with with the rise of more authoritarian governments, what they are emphasizing is this ultra nationalism, this tribalism um, over. Over the civil society that is composed of different people from different origins, can you talk about this? And also, you have uh, an example. we talk about uh, Oristia. That would be great if you could expand on that point.
0: So yes. Yeah, so the last two chapters are about uh, well, the Oristia is a is a trilogy of uh, three plays by Aeschylus uh, that were produced in 458 BCE. So a good hundred years after the. Uh, Archaic epics were first written down, but hundreds of years after those stories first began to circulate. And what the Oris style and what a lot of the Greek tragedies do, most of the ones that have survived, uh, reinterpret stories that we can also glimpse in the archaic epics. In other words, they were taking these traditional stories and changing details and emphases uh, to to expose the audience to new ways of thinking. So the traditional notion, of um uh moral behavior was help your friends and harm your enemies and that works very well in a tribal society uh and and the corollary to that is vengeance equals justice so as i mentioned all the characters in the Iliad and the odyssey think that vengeance revenge equals justice but those stories are already beginning to suggest that vengeance doesn't really solve anything and that it creates escalating violence. So by the time Aeschylus was writing the the, Oresteia, the Athenians had an alternative for 150 years. They had had jury trials, but jury trials only work if everyone recognizes that they are preferable to the alternative of vengeance. And you need to change people's attitudes from thinking that vengeance equals justice to thinking that justice is a communal legal procedure. So the Iliad shows that vengeance doesn't serve the individual's interests very well because Achilles just gets more and more miserable the more he uh, kills people in, in to avenge his, his uh, friend's death. But the Oresteia shows that a communal legal procedure serves the community's interest better. So there's a story that's woven through the Odyssey. There's a story of a young man who is admired for avenging his father's murder by killing the killer. And the young man is Orestes. And there Orestes is mentioned numerous times in the Odyssey, always admirably, by gods, by characters, by the narrator. This is a great thing. This is what you want. You want a son who will avenge his father's killing. So Aeschylus takes this story. And in the in the Orestia, in the trilogy, Orestes is not uh, a, a, a model of moral. Uh, probity he's a problem and the detail that that Aeschylus changes is that in order to avenge his father's death Orestes has to kill his own mother Uh, so uh, uh, Agamemnon is Orestes' father he was killed by a usurper while he was away in Troy somebody um, seduced his wife and usurped the throne and when he came home he very incautiously marched in and uh, the usurper killed him and then Orestes comes along and kills the killer. But in the Orestia, when Aeschylus reinterprets this story, it's actually the queen, Agamemnon's wife, who's the prime mover of the conspiracy to kill her husband. And in order to avenge his father's death, Aesch- uh, Orestes has to kill his own mother. Um, so uh, this is a problem for the community. And the only way it can be resolved is uh, by... A jury trial, and in the in the in the third play of the trilogy, Athena um, convenes a jury, and then the interesting thing is that the, the votes of the jury are evenly split. So Athena, the goddess, casts her vote in favor of Orestes, and he's acquitted. And this is a remarkable. Uh, it's uncomfortable, right? He's a murderer, and yet he's acquitted. And this is this is um, one of the features of jury trials. And judicial outcomes—they're very unsatisfying in many instances. Uh, and even even when someone is, you know, given life imprisonment for a murder or 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 uh, or worse, uh, it doesn't bring back the dead, and it doesn't really solve the. But it, but it serves the community's interests better. And this is this is a key piece of the transition from tribalism to civil society the recognition that the community's interests have to supersede because there's no satisfying the individual right the individual who's been wronged uh cannot be restored to uh to the status they had before the wrong was committed so the interests of the community have to supersede and people have to realize that this is better for everyone um
1: i must say you have a unique talent for 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 establishing connection between Greek myths, stories which were written 2,000 years ago, and how they represent realities of today's world. And uh, Mm -hmm. you were talking about jury trials. Again, it rings very familiar these days as well.
0: Well, the great challenge for us, though, is that jury trials can only have uh, popular support. People people only sign on to that form of justice if they feel that it is equitable. And uh, if they feel that it is not equitable then that ancient primitive notion of vengeance equals justice will resurface so it is it is incumbent on modern societies to strive to make the jury system and the and policing fair and just because otherwise people will take uh this other route the more the more traditional primitive route of justice equals vengeance mm-hmm. and and we we have a long way to go in the United States uh to make our our jury system our, our, our judicial system in general equitable and fair mm-hmm. we can also notice that for odysseus return when he returns to his home he doesn't have the option of calling the police or uh going uh going into a, a court of law to get uh restitution for the violence that's been done to him he takes matters into his own hands and he murders all the suitors uh But of course that doesn't solve anything because then the suitor's families want to want to take vengeance on him Mm. uh and it would completely spin out of control except that athena intervenes which is very unsatisfying for the audience but it makes the point that vengeance as justice is just ever escalating and interminable Mm. and in order for people to to make that switch and say no actually uh it's better if civil society requires a functioning uh rule of law and the jury system but they have it has to work fairly otherwise mm. people are not are not going to agree to it mm. uh the tribalism question I think really comes in with the with the, the final chapter of my book which is the book about the Antigone I don't know if we have time to talk about that
1: yeah yeah uh, that's the next one that I wanted to ask for the the theme of that chapter is conflict and you talk about the shortcomings of close-mindedness and again, you discussed another great example, Sophocles' Antigone. So, uh, and again, how how that closed-mindedness can, can lead to the destruction or breakdown of civic society and also families. So we are very keen, very keen to hear more about that.
0: So this, this story is um, a story about conflict between two different conceptions of communal organization. One is the family, the tribe, the clan. And the other is civil civil society, and in in the most in the earliest times, pre pre uh, pre citizen community, your your tribe was your was your community, right? Your 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 kinship group that those were your fellow citizens. But when you have a larger community that consists of numerous tribes or clans or family groupings, then the question arises, well, which do you owe more allegiance to, to your family or to your fellow citizens? And so the Antigone shows us a clash of uh, those two systems where you have um, Antigone, who prioritizes her... Uh, obligations to her family, and her uncle, who's also her great uncle, uh, who prioritizes his obligations to fellow citizens. And both of them are so certain of the moral correctness of their view that they simply cannot communicate with one another. They... Both are hot tempered and they become quickly enraged with one another and they end up destroying everything, the family, the community, themselves. Uh, so they're a counter model for us. And this is one of the wonderful things that I mean, the Greeks, the Greeks are good to think with, and often they provide inspiring models, positive models, but often uh, negative models, counter models. And I think Antigone and Creon in this play show us how not to resolve conflicts. Uh, they 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 simply cannot even hear good advice when it's given to them and they are so certain that they cannot compromise they cannot think creatively there's a very obvious solution to their problem that they never even consider uh and so i think you know they, they seem sort of foreign because they the, the issue at sta- at issue is is the burial of of a traitor uh but but They seem very familiar to me as 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 modern politics gets so polarized and people are shouting at one another without listening. Uh, I think we should take take the warning that Sophocles offers in this play and think deeply about better, better ways of resolving conflict than just simply destroying
1: ourselves. Um, I think what you just said is a perfect segue to my uh, last question. Generally speaking, do you think that or let's say how can Greek? Uh, classical mythology serves us as serves as some guidelines to to live and also to combat the rise of intolerance, political intolerance, populism, or tyranny in our modern world.
0: Well, you know, one one of the things that I think uh, autocrats and would be autocrats really rely on is gullible, acquiescent subjects—people who will not fact check their absurdities. Who will uh, accept whatever they're told? Uh, so what I what I love about these stories is that they invite us to think critically about every story that we're told, uh, to to evaluate uh, based on empirical evidence. Who is and who is telling me this, and how does it align with what I know of the world? Not simply to just uh, accept it because it comes from an authoritative. Source. Uh, I think these stories encourage us to uh, evaluate the, char- the, the the choices of the characters within the stories. You know, we 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 can be a little more objective because these are not we we're not directly influenced by the outcome of the stories. So we can look more objectively at what the characters choose to say and do and how that turns out for them. And these stories all emphasize a direct causal relationship between an individual's priorities and their skills and the survival and the success of that individual uh, and and of their community. And they they, uh, emphasize the costs of abusing power, not just to the victims, but also and especially to the perpetrators. And that I think is a remarkable uh, thing to think about. We tend to think that when people abuse power, they do fine and their victims suffer. But in fact, these stories show that the, the, the power abusers themselves suffer. Um, so I think these stories are really helpful in, 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 in encouraging us to recognize uh, and reject corrupt and incompetent leadership. Uh, they encourage us to oppose the, the tyranny of the majority and above all to resist this increasing use of violence and intimidation in the political process um they encourage us to distinguish fact from fiction as if our lives depend on it because they do uh and they promote evidence-based thinking reasoned argument think about how vital to democratic government reasoned argument is being able to thrash out ideas uh rather than fight physically the greeks from a very early stage recognized the that there were two types of competition Hesiod, the poet Hesiod writes about this. There's there's physical competition that's often destructive and it's zero sum, and then there's verbal competition which can actually be constructive, and that's one of the themes in Sclerose's trilogy that the competition of ideas and arguments can actually benefit everyone. Uh, the the other The other value that has to transition, uh, not just a, a new conception of justice that isn't the same as vengeance. That's a mistaken equation to think that justice equals vengeance. But another theme in the Oresteia is a redefinition of victory. Victory can't mean I win, you lose. Victory has to mean we both win. And think about how vital that is for democratic processes. Everybody has to get something out of it uh, in order for the negotiation or the compromise to, uh, to endure. So, yeah, they're just... All of these attitudes and skills that these stories cultivate in us. And they do it in a in an indirect way because as I say, we're we're not, we can, we can set our passions aside a little bit because we're not directly involved in the outcome of the stories themselves. Whereas it's hard to be dispassionate when you're reading the current current events, news, uh, or listening to a, a political speech or or a campaign ad. It's very hard to be dispassionate.
1: Yeah, I, I I I couldn't agree with you more, and uh, I really like the point you mentioned about the importance of reasoned argument. But unfortunately, what we see these days in political discussions is simply an effort to score a goal. Nobody really cares about having that reasoned, fleshed-out argument, but it's just to repudiate, repudiate what other the other party is saying. Um, Before we end this conversation, you've written about Eliot, you've written extensively about Odyssey. Is there any other book or project you're currently working on?
0: Yeah, I'm currently working on... Thank you for asking that. I'm currently (laughs) working on a book on Herodotus, who is a 5th century uh, Greek historian. He introduced this distinction between myth and history because prior to Herodotus, The Greeks thought of these epic stories, the stories in the epics and the tragedies, as their history. They were events of long ago that happened to real people. And Herodotus came along in the the fifth century and said, well, you know, they happened too long ago for them to be verifiable. So I'm going to write about more recent events, and I'm going to draw on eyewitness accounts, my own Mm. and other people, and material evidence that corroborates these eyewitness accounts. Now, he's not entirely consistent on that, but it's a vital distinction between myth and history. This notion that in order to be factually true, something has to be verifiable and verified. And this is a vital principle, particularly as we move into the era of AI, when mm. it's going to be even harder to distinguish fact from fiction. Mm. Uh, it's already hard enough, but this is going to make it exponentially harder um, to have this, the intellectual skills and the will to strive to distinguish false from true mm. or or myth from re- reality
1: mm.
0: so that's that's my that's my current project
1: cool. uh i'm originally from iran myself so i guess i should expect to read something about uh Herodotus books called uh, the persian wars i guess it's called right yes
0: yes <laughs> he was he's he's our main source for the Persian yeah wars,
1: that's right so. yeah i don't wonder how much if it might be true but that's well, history anyway. yeah,
0: he's it, it, He's it's not an unbiased account. I mean, this is this is the thing. Yeah. It, it, it's definitely a tangential Greek-centered account. Mm. Uh, but he's he's using history to shape the attitudes and values of his contemporaries, and this is, I mm. think, something that uh, the epics and tragedies do as well, and they can still yeah. do for us today. Mm. <laughs> provide guidance.
1: Uh, Professor Emily Katz and Hall thank you very much for talking to us on New Books Network and sharing your thoughts about this wonderful book.
0: Thank you very much for for talking with me it's been a great pleasure speaking with you.